If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, and welcome to Intelligence Squared. So here are three words I am sure you have been hearing. Done with COVID. Done with COVID. It's a hashtag. It's uh, also a signal sent by Democratic governors who have ended mask mandates this winter. And it's a sentiment that is increasingly shared and voiced aloud that as a society, we just can't stay in a defensive crouch indefinitely with mask mandates and vaccine requirements and metaphorical flashing emergency lights. We failed to defeat COVID and it is not done with us. So we'll just have to learn to live with it. Well, if that is a sound choice now, and of course that is very debatable, could we have made that same choice a year ago? Or what about two years ago when we barely understood COVID? And when the next serious pandemic wave hits us with COVID or something else, will that put us right back into an emergency state requiring once again lockdowns and mandates and those metaphorical flashing lights? Well, those are questions we are going to debate right now. Our debaters are John Tierney, who has grappled with these questions as a science journalist and a writer for City Journal, and Inbal Shachem, a scientist and researcher in behavioral science at St. Louis University, whose research in the last couple of years has focused very much on the effectiveness of some of the mitigation efforts. This conversation was wide-ranging and touched on a lot of controversies. What follows is an extended excerpt of what we found most compelling, where we discuss Sweden's no-lockdown strategy at the very start of this pandemic and what society can take from that approach going forward. First up, John Tierney. Sweden, for instance, and one of the best studies on this was in Sweden where they closed um, their high schools briefly, you know, during the spring of 2020. They left, you know, the lower schools open, no masks, no social distancing, very fairly loose quarantine policies. If you'd been exposed to someone, you could still go to school unless you had symptoms. And they analyzed the records of the entire student population, you know, and they compared you know, I think it was seventh graders versus eighth graders. The eighth graders stayed home. The seventh graders didn't. And they found, you know, no difference in rates among the, the students. But they also looked at the parents. And they found there was no difference in the, you know, between the parents whose kids went to school without masks and the kids who's, and the parents whose whose children stayed home and the rate of, being, of going to the hospital or dying from COVID. I mean, so the, that was a huge nationwide ex, natural experiment. So Sweden's a great example of what could have been done, right? Um, Sweden has a system of care that, A, they have a national health care system. B, they have an employment system where people, the adults were able to work from home. They prioritized the children to go to school and, and the adults were asked to stay home. And as a behavioral scientist, I can tell you two things. We're terrible at reporting our data, but we're more terrible at um, when we're left to our own devices, we're, we are terrible actors. And so just like having an extra dessert or <laughs> having an extra drink, we're not good at being healthy for our, ourselves. So when we know that we need to have said that social desirability of whether I wear a mask or not, I will tell you that I wore a mask. But 
The truth is I didn't if it's not mandated. The challenge also is that that comparison of which states did better, we, I, I mean, we did a study here in Missouri. I was able to identify that these, the counties that had mask mandates uh, had a 44% increase of over the same time frame of infections. And our, our counties that did not have, or did have a mandate had a, a much more reduced um, mandate, uh, infection rate. But I think ultimately what we're looking at is that we had a higher rate because we had more population. The total population and population density really drove much of the pandemic and, and where the infection rates occurred. So better understanding of where and when to wear masks is also about how populated in, in, of an environment are you in. You know, there's a new book out now called Unmasked by, by Ian Miller, who's been doing a lot of this COVID graphing. And he shows for these counties, St. Louis, St. Charles and Jefferson County, he shows the graph over the whole pandemic. And what you see is indeed, you know, there's, you know, during that summer when, you know, it was kind of a small surge, uh, you see a little difference in those counties. But then you see this enormous winter surge happens. And there's really no difference in the curves between the counties with the mandates and the ones without. And, you know, the curves are just virtually identical over the next year. And that's what you see over and over again in this pandemic. And I mean, I just looked up the, you know, two of those counties, St. Louis County and Franklin County, which which didn't have the mandate. And they have, you know, identical rates of COVID over the course of the pandemic. And there are actually more deaths in St. Louis County than in the other one. So I just don't think we have the evidence that mass mandates work. So before we talk about who to target them, I think we, you know, that, I mean, that's a big issue. And I think really that the burden of Wait, proof- wait, wait, let, 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 let Inbo respond oh, to that. Okay. Please. So for the record, we also looked through January of 2021. We looked at the infection rates to see how the mask mandates were persisting. We, we found, contrary to the, to the book that's published, um, we also found that our- our mask mandates held strong um, at 35% reduction. So we started at 44% reduction, and then it was still 35%. Now, understandably, you can say that that's not enough reduction. But I would argue that, um, especially among those vulnerable populations and those who are unable to get vaccinated and don't want to test and see what happens if they get COVID, I would say that that, that there's a reason to reduce your risk and, and that the, the mandates worked. And my study is one of many. I mean, I think C- CDC had a great combination of, or a collection of other studies that were done at different, st- at different states and different times. So I can understand, I, I don't know, I can't understand why we can't wear a mask. I actually can't understand that. I, I, because I, I think masks, masks are massively inconvenient and, and there are definite harms associated with masks. And I mean, I don't want to go, keep going back and forth on this, but I'm looking at this chart and, you know, in January of that, you, you know, St. Louis County was higher than St. Charles County. Wait, 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 John, I, I, you've covered that, Grant. I want you to yeah, follow okay. up on what you just right. said. Masks are enormously inconvenient. Did you say tremendously inconvenient? Yes. I mean, I'm, you know, uh, I'm to go, go with me on tremendously okay. and, and, the, okay. and the harms. Uh, I mean, masks are tremendously inconvenient and they cause lots of harms. You know, there's, um, 
uh, there's a paper published that reviewed 65 scientific papers on this, and they concluded that there was statistically significant evidence for what they termed masked-induced exhaustion syndrome. It includes various physiological changes and subjective complaints and decrease in blood oxygen, increase in carbon monoxide, um, increase in heart and respiratory rates, difficulty breathing, dizziness, headache, drowsiness, decreased ability to concentrate and think. And the obvious social harms of we can't see people's faces. We're social animals. And I think this was just devastating to children to have you know, years of their childhood not being able to see their teachers. They're trying to learn how to, how to speak and get along with others. They can't see people's faces. And this was a huge harm to all of us. And unless I really think that this was a harmful intervention and, you know, and the law in medicine should be first do no harm, there has to be overwhelming proof that this actually accomplished something before you can order it. And I don't think we have that proof. And I think it did cause harms. I mean, the stories I hear about, you know, kids who um, are so afraid that they wear a mask to bed, you know, adults are supposed to be um, reassuring okay. children. Go ahead. Okay. Again, you've made, you've made, John, you've made your point and I, I'm interrupting just, just yeah, in the go ahead. That's fa- fine. matter of fairness of time. I, in, yeah. in, I'm guessing you're thoroughly unpersuaded by what John just said, yeah, possibly think, with the exception of the issue in education settings, maybe. No, I think, uh, you know, again, we have to evaluate our risks. And um, in John's perspective, it seems like he doesn't think that a school environment was would be risky. And I would say that if we didn't have adults that got, had to go to work and go through all these other public spaces, we're able to identify where they go and when they go and how much time they're spending there. So putting um, their children at risk of infection is important. Uh, what what I would say is about masks and um, the impact, the tremendous negative impact it has, I don't think it does, period. I think we can show years of evidence of healthcare workers using masks as prevention of infection. I can understand the exhaustion of uh, the pandemic. I wouldn't say that it's exhaustion related to wearing a mask. I think that people are exhausted. And I think one of the most important pieces is that we are two years in and we're still not ahead of this in any stretch. And we thought we were going to win, right? (laughs) So um, I think we turn around and, and say masks are one important tool and it's a good transition to vaccines. Well, I don't want to. I do want to get to vaccines, but I want to do a different transition from the point you just made, which is that where we are weary, we are weary of the pandemic, and I wonder if we have gone through something of a philosophical transition. When you know, John said at the beginning that there were predictions of of really, really terrible consequences that did not come true, and yet, you know, as winter wound up here and spring began, we were approaching a million deaths in the United States. This winter, we had a daily death rate, sometimes above 2,000, which was the highest that we had experienced in a year. You'd have to go back to last spring to have numbers that high. Last spring, we were treating 2,000 deaths a day as an emergency, as terrible, as, un, you know, just in, it's, it's not something that could be tolerated. Now we're talking about 2,000 deaths a day in a period of time when people say, I'm done with COVID. I'm just wondering, have we reoriented our expectations of what's terrible in terms of of deaths from a virus. John, I'd like you to go first with that. Um, well, I think people are getting a little more realistic, you know, that, I mean, and although they still, you know, polls show that people vastly overestimate their risk from COVID. I mean, I'm in my 60s and I was at some risk, but it's still, you know, the odds of surviving, it, it simply isn't 
as big a risk for people who don't have these comorbidities and, and who aren't elderly. And I think people are maybe getting a little more realistic about that. That um, you know, and once you're vaccinated, the odds are um, are just. Um, are minuscule. I could talk about that if you want, but I mean, the odds are so low, it's so much lower than other risks in life that I don't think there's any reason to um, to be going on with this fear-mongering. So, so you would disagree with, if I characterize it as though we've become desensitized to these deaths, you would say more we've become realistic about what, what's, uh, what, what's possible. Yes. What about you, Inbal? I think that we are exhausted and we can't even consider what 2,000 deaths um what 2,000 deaths a day are or 3,000 deaths a day translate into. I think that we we can't even imagine it, but we know we're doing studies that we know that, you know, most people have, uh, many people have experienced someone dying in, in their family or their friend circle. We know that that loss is significant, whether it's older adults or not. Uh, the, the willingness to, um, decide that older adults are the ones who are going to die and it's fine is, is un- uncomfortable, I think. Um, but more importantly, we had the highest vaccine rates for older adults. 80, 85% of our U.S. population have um, of older adults have been vaccinated and, and are in the pro- still in the process of being boosted. So I, I don't see that that death rate is decidedly parallel to only older adults are dying. It's not, um, and it shouldn't be an acceptable rate of, of death. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So going forward, if this were to happen again, another resurgence of another variant of COVID or some new uh, thing comes along, what do we do next time in terms of declaring an emergency or not? And when I say declare an emergency right now, the federal government declared emergencies, all 50 states declared emergencies, not all of them have been lifted. The federal government's uh, remained in place at least through the winter. Um, so people on airplanes, federal employees were still wearing masks, et cetera. What, next time around, we have these tools that we used this time around, mandatory vaccination in a lot of settings, mandatory mask wearing in a lot of settings, lockdown of businesses in many places. Do we do it again? Did we learn that that these things worked? Did I think both of you can see that there's a balance of, of benefits and, and harms from all of these things. The question is on balance, did these measures uh, do more harm than good or vice versa? So Inbal, let me ask you to go to this first. If it happens again, would you want to return to mask mandates? Would you want to return to... Uh, some form of lockdown or social distancing? Would you want to insist, continue to insist and then spread the requirements for vaccinations? So I would consider each one of those separately. So mask mandates, as as I've already outlined, I, I don't think that they are harmful. So yes, I think they're the least invasive. Secondly, I would prioritize vaccine mandates for those who, for 
individuals and populations who are moving around communities with higher community mobility. So that geo-mobility, we can identify how um, different patterns and of where people live, work, and play. We can understand where they move, how they move, and, and then we should be able to say, you need to prioritize your vaccine, uh, vaccinating those, those individuals who are moving around communities and going into areas where people are more vulnerable. So like the um, earlier mentioned, um, nursing home staff, healthcare support staff, uh, all healthcare workers, uh, I think those are prioritized. I think the other thing is lockdowns. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about how we hadn't put place put in place a lockdown. If we had put in place a lockdown for Omicron, when we were experiencing the surges all over the country, we would have stopped it for three weeks. We would have seen the drop of infections. We didn't use our data to inform how to best in, implement COVID mitigation strategies. And I think we need to come up with a plan. What is the, the acceptable level of infection and what's too much? Uh, what we saw were that hospitals and healthcare workers were stretched to their beyond their capacity, but we continued we didn't stop and slow down. And so, because it's not the politically appropriate thing to do um, and, and nobody wanted to do it. So if we were able to say, this is what we're doing for now or only a short period of time, people might be able to support that more uh, with more with more seriousness and, and willingness in, in many ways. John? Um well, the first thing I would do before the next pandemic is to have a really systematic review of the evidence for this one, that we really need some kind of COVID commission to look over what worked and what didn't. And I think it will show that, that lockdowns and mass mandates did not work. And again, all the experience in places that did just as well or better without them. Um, the other thing I think that we should really do is not trust public policy to scientists with a very narrow perspective. And in this case, they focus so narrowly on one disease instead of looking at the overall impact of it. That would be the main thing. You've really got to have people who take in the big picture, who look at the overall public health, not just the rate of infection of one disease. So I would just highlight that um, our public health leaders should should really be allowed to lead. So I, I agree. We could have a Work, a task force that has far more um, experts in it. And, and as a reminder, you know, much of our lockdown approach was based on what China was doing. So we, we did a lighter version, but we saw that China was reacting in this way and we wanted to minimize the, the cost of morbidity and mortality in 2020. And then um, I think as 2021 came and uh, we were Problem, you know, we, we had a, a great success with vaccine, although we don't have great um, uptake in lots of communities. And so thinking through um, the opportunities that we can learn from is, is the right thing. And then saying, what are the different st strategies and, and expertise that we need at the table from the beginning is, is important. John, you, you said you admired the effort to develop the vaccines. Um, but where are you on mandating vaccines? Um, I don't think um, I can see a case for mandating vaccines for, you know, certainly you know, a nursing home staff. And there's been extensive evidence that people who've been infected with COVID acquire immunity that is stronger and longer lasting than vaccine immunity. I mean, another, by the way, was the lockdowns. Nurses, you know, their kids were home, so they couldn't go to work. 
Um, so, I, you know, we should certainly have recognized natural immunity. And that was so unscientific. It was, you know, I, it was just baffling, um, you know, why we didn't recognize natural immunity. Um, and I think the other problem with the vaccine mandates is that, I, I, that it basically forcing people to do it, it offends many people's sense of liberty that the, the government does not have a right to do this. And I think it, it did it probably in the long run, it actually hurts the, it hurts the cause because when you start telling people you have to do this, their natural reaction for many people is, if it's so great, why are you making me do it? Um, if it's so great for me, why won't you let me decide for myself? So I don't think it, I, I think it's good for more people, for more older people to be vaccinated, for, for nursing staff, but I don't think that, that mandating it um, for the general population, you know, helps the cause in any way. And it basically, it takes away, you know, and it really needlessly divides the country. I mean, you want public health, you want everyone to pull together against um, a common threat. And instead, this was just, it became such a political issue that we're going to make the other side follow our orders, and it needlessly polarized the country. Inbal, do you agree with any of that? Um, I, I agree that it was polarizing, um, but I would say that <laughs> as as Basque mandates, the same data would would argue um, that if given our freedoms, we would not uh, vaccinate against m- many things because. Why should we? We don't think our, our potential risk is very low. Um, that's what we per- perceive. Um, you know, I, I, while, while John cites some studies, there are plenty of other studies that say two things. Um, we're really bad at assessing our risk, and uh, the poor assessment of risk translates into very low risk usually. And so we don't think we're going to get COVID, we also don't think we're going to get lots of other infectious diseases. And so um, how do we mandate them? I think that we mandate them by reminding people that certain employer, to me, I don't understand why employers aren't requiring mandates because they're paying for health care um, and that health insurance is, is more likely going to be more among people who are unvaccinated. So I, I think, if anything, that the market should figure that part out, too. I mean, I agree that uh, the people do underestimate their risk for some things, but with COVID, it's the reverse. The surveys show people vastly overestimate their risk. And the most bizarre thing is that young people are more afraid of COVID than older people, even though their risk is so small. So I don't think people underestimated the risk of COVID. I think that um, when we have... Uh, the older adults that were vaccinated, since most the vast majority of them have been vaccinated, they shouldn't be at, con, as concerned as their risk of getting COVID. I, you know, I think one of the important things also when we're talking about how do we assess risk, we're not really informative. We, um, in helping people understand that very well, we assumed when we were developing these vaccines, when they went out and said, we're going to develop these vaccines and warp speed, that was amazing, right? What an amazing um, feat of scientific feat. We expected maybe 50% effective um, vaccines. And what we ended up with was 90%. And now, mind you, you know, viruses are smart and they adapt to certain situations. And so they'll, they'll manipulate in ways that we can't predict always. And so I think that that success has not been um, one of those moments, you know, to to encourage people to get vaccinated has been very challenging and difficult. Um, And so that translation of this risk is low if you get a vaccine is important. I think if we translate the risk is high, (laughs) if you don't get a vaccine, 
um, that that didn't translate well. And and so, most of those so, places look, did not require I, I, a mandate. I want to. I, yeah. I want to move on from that point that you've made to, to something else, because you've just made the case, John has made the case, you've both made the case that um, uh, translating science to the public has been problematic and that some of that has to do with who we are as uh, as people and our education system. Some of it has to do with the messages that we're coming from uh, the policymakers, um, apparent inconsistency and the perception sometimes that the uh, messaging was politically motivated. And I, I want to bring up the fact that the CDC um, revised really its benchmark for when when Omicron is at dangerous levels. And, and they, they set the figure of 200,000 cases per 100,000 people in the population is now kind of low. Below that is okay. But that's sort of before 200 was really, really problematic. So they kind of by fiat announced, well, we're out of the emergency. And I, I would like you each to respond to that fact, that there's a perception that the science, to the degree that it works, to the degree that we know it, to the degree that people are doing their best, uh, comes second often to the politics and the messaging, and that that undermines people's belief in what the scientists are actually saying. And Inbal, can you take that on first? Sure. I think that's um, accurate. So the shift in policy needed to happen from CDC from a political standpoint, and, and also reacting to being able to live with the the COVID infection. So we know that we need to live with the COVID infections in our communities. We need to understand how to best do that. So being able to give us location-specific risk is good. If we're able to identify um, where we're going and saying, oh, look, there's a higher infection rate here, and then there's a lower infection rate in my home community, so I should wear a mask there, for example, or I should make sure that I'm not going in crowded places that are indoors. That Those are those risk assessments that we can make for ourselves. Now, truly, we have seen the politicization of public health, of healthcare in general, in this pandemic, we've seen how if we really reduce the number of um, tests, we aren't going to test. We don't see the number of um, our coroners and our medical examiners are um, appointed and elected. And so throughout our country, so our death certificates are not consistent. Um, the And we're finding that there's relationship in political uh, affiliation of the county in which the coroners and the medical examiners are related to whether they report higher COVID deaths or lower COVID deaths in relation to the COVID infection rates. So those pieces are pretty important. Um, You know, the government funds public health. CDC is funded by the government. It's a federal agency and every state and local public health agency is funded as a government entity. So, it's always going to have science and and the care for public, the public good, and balancing it out on how we can deliver those messages. And that gets really complicated, I think. John? Um, I agree that, uh, you know, there's been a, a, a huge decline in trust by the public um, of, the, of, of scientists and the CDC, and with good reason. I mean, the guidance has changed so arbitrarily. So many things have been said that were not based on good scientific evidence. This assurance that lockdowns work. And I mean, I, mean, I can argue forever, but, I, you know, I, I, I don't think the, the evidence is there for mask mandates either for masks. And they kept insisting this stuff would happen, that it, we'd stop COVID, that it would do it. Um, and, 
and the risks were so unrealistic. Uh, there was so much fear-mongering by the CDC that people simply stopped trusting them altogether. And the guidance changed so much, and, and the rationales for doing things changed so much. that And it, it became politicized so that you've had a real you, you know, decline in trust. And that's why I think we need to have a COVID commission to evaluate everything and to restore that trust. The, uh, you know, the media was, you know, was terrible and it was always promoting panic porn. And you would hope that the responsible public health officials would be trying to put the risks in perspective. You know, that, okay. I, mean, <laughs> I, I just want to point out that I'm hearing the two of you agree on this point. And, and, yeah. and that's a kind of wonderful place to be wrapping up the conversation. But I want to add one more question that kind of looks down to the future before we do that. I'll put it to you first, John. When, would, when will, in the future... If there is another pandemic, at what point would you agree that it is an emergency and that extraordinary measures broadly across society are required? Um, it's, um, I'm not sure what number you have. I mean, I think the most important thing I would do for the next pandemic is you should be carefully monitoring these things. You should prepare for it. One thing we could do is have more. That, that you're telling me what you would do. I'm asking you how you would define it. Well, I'm trying to, I mean, I don't know what, you know, what level of, um, I mean, to come up with a number right now for what the, uh, the level of excess deaths, I mean, I would do, I mean, I would, um, I would have done what Sweden did. You know, they looked and saw who was dying and they, um, they suggested people to, uh, to work from home to do the least invasive uh, measures first. Uh, you look, you try to protect the population at risk. You see, I mean, you, you try to find out immediately how lethal is this virus and, you know, and who is at risk from. And you need to find that out right away and, 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 and act accordingly. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we made and what I would do next time is the idea that people can't be trusted. One of the things we saw in places like Sweden, they trusted their citizens. If we give you the information, we tell you there's a threat here, we tell you there's a virus circulate. People did respond without being ordered to, without, you know, um, and, and it worked. I mean, Sweden it had, had some of the lowest excess mortality in Europe throughout this pandemic, and they, had, and they had the least restrictions. They trusted their citizens to get a proper information and act accordingly. And we but don't but, you're, to- but you're, you're, not, you're kind of not rising to the occasion of telling me when it's an emergency. I'm not necessarily looking for a specific number, but more sort of qualitative sense. You know, we, I, I would describe back in 2020 that suddenly um, the world was caught up in this thing. The numbers were growing quickly. We didn't know what to do about it. We didn't have responses to it. And we felt that we were in an emergency. We went into a defensive crouch. Do you see that scenario repeating? Is there a point at which you would say, yeah, this is all, all sirens flashing and all lights flashing. This is an emergency. Or do you think we'll never come to that point again? Um, I, I don't know when we'll come to this point again, or if we will. Um, I would say that if a new virus appears that appears to be very infectious and more lethal than normal, we should monitor carefully, tell the public what's going on. One might, as a precaution early on, try to ban large gatherings of people. But other than that, I would not lock down society. I would not close schools. Um, as I say, the CDC plan, even if the Spanish flu pandemic, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be ordering these things. We should tell people the information and let people respond as best as they can. Because I think people, well, people will make better decisions than, uh, than, uh, than two officials in Washington ordering everyone what to do. Thanks, John. And Inbal, same question to you. If there's a resurgence or a new uh, variant or a new virus starts to threaten pandemic proportions, at what point do we know it's an emergency? 
I think we know it's an emergency when, when we're able to say, oh, there are a lot of sick people, basically, right? So if we aren't measuring, if there are Ill, uh, sickness in communities, then we won't know. Um, we're transitioning into COVID rates um, and infection rates. We're, we're transitioning to monitoring them weekly, and that's going to give us a lot less sensitivity. But what we can ultimately say is that we need systems of care that are um, really these early sensing systems that are predicting and preventing um, outbreaks within this current pandemic, but in future, we'll be able to identify, hey, there's a new virus, something new is happening, we're going to do the science, and we're going to study uh, what we can and identify what are what are the what is this virus? Can we identify the virus? Can we identify who's being affected? Much like what we already did for COVID, and I think that it's hard to remember that that was a tremendous feat um, in and of itself. And so, we are a global community, and figuring out how do we care for one another in that space by sharing data and sharing insights on how and what we know about different viruses and how they're acting and causing morbidity and mortality in different communities is really ultimately important. Jonathan Ball, you, you you disagree on a lot, but interestingly, you agree in some fundamental ways on the need for better education, smarter policy, more information. Um, more science. You're both on the same page about that. So I, I want to leave this on the notion that the two of you can shake hands because you've <laughs> conducted this conversation in a way that really shows mutual respect, which is what we aim for at Intelligence Squared. You heard each other out, at least to the degree that you were actually responding to one another's points. I want to thank both of you, uh, John Tierney and Inbal Shafam, for taking part in this conversation with Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Take care. And I'm John Donvan. I want to remind those of you who are listening that we uh, are doing these debates all of the time and that we rely on your support to help us do that. We would love it if you could help support us by going to our website, iq2us.org, where you can make a donation. Also, you can become a member and have access to some exclusive events that we put together for members only. Uh, we're keeping going. We're doing this uh, pandemic or not, emergency or not, we're going forward and we're going to continue putting together wonderful, interesting, informative, light-shedding debates for you. I'm John Donvan. Until next time, this is Intelligence Squared. I want to thank you and our audience for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you have enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is generously funded by listeners like you, members of Intelligence Squared, academic institutions and other partners, and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is our head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and head of production. Shea O'Mara and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Kim Strempel is our production coordinator. Damon Whittemore is our audio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. We'll see you next time.